Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, offering a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. The following is an encore presentation from August of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Stephen Ranella, author of Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter, says that hunting is intimately connected with our humanity and that assuming responsibility for the meat that we eat rather than entrusting it to proxy executioners, processors, packagers, and distributors is one of the most respectful and exhilarating things a meat eater can do. In his book, Ranella talks about the vanishing frontier, the ethics of hunting, or killing, rather, and the loss of Americans' connection with the way their food makes its way to their tables. He talks about where hunting fits into the sustainable living movement in vogue now. We'll talk about all of these topics with Stephen Ranella. Here's some of his hunting stories, as well as some of the history of hunting in America. Stephen Ranella is uh, host of the television show Maneater on the Sportsman Channel, author of previous books, American Buffalo in Search of a Lost Icon, and The Scavenger's Guide to Haute Cuisine. He uh, has an MFA in uh, writing from University of Montana and uh, has uh, had his writing appear in such publications as Outside, Field and Stream, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Glamour, Men's Journal, and uh, Salon. Born and raised in Michigan, currently lives in Brooklyn. Stephen Ranella, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so I'd like to begin with an image uh, that, that I had in my mind as I was reading the book. And I believe you've actually had this happen living in Brooklyn. Uh, the image was you at a party or some function. Uh, people learn you're an avid hunter, and the vegetarians in the group, um, or people who are uncomfortable with hunting. And uh, that number is, is growing in America, and the number of hunters is declining, sort of forming a circle around you and you having a dialogue, uh, perhaps heated with them. I don't know if that's ever happened. You know, I always thought it would happen, and I'm always ready for it to happen. But it doesn't happen. Doesn't um, happen. I, I, I've had a lot of debates or open discussions, but I've never really gotten into like a, a verbal brawl with anyone about hunting, particularly in like an urban area where I think people are more accustomed perhaps to um, being around people with differing viewpoints, um, being more open to you know, conflicting views. So it just doesn't happen. I, you know, I'm on the road half the time, or a little more than half the time, and I spend you know slightly less than half the time here in in the city with my family, and I just never have an issue. And I've converted many, many non-hunters or, or even vegetarians into not hunters necessarily, but hunting advocates by just having them over and feeding them wild game. Now, I practice something I like to think of as venison diplomacy. Hmm. And, I, and yeah, it just I, I never have like adversarial conversations. Mm -hmm. But it's a good point because I always anticipate that I would, but I never do. Yeah, uh, but you have had uh, you've invited vegetarians and others over to to taste the the, the medicine. I wonder about the other areas, rural areas, where maybe you'd have. Uh, but of course, in rural areas, uh, often uh, the percentages of hunters and those comfortable with hunting would be higher. Certainly, it was the case where I grew up in in rural Utah, where the the high school would shut down for a few days during during a deer hunting season. Yeah, it's, it's funny like that, you know. Um, yeah, I find that, you know, of course, rural people, I, I grew up in a, in a in a semi-rural area, and I've lived in a lot of rural areas, and rural people have much higher exposure to hunting 
are much more educated about hunting. But in a weird way, something that I noticed is uh, I find that, like, city people really are open to experimenting with a lot of weird, wild game, often because they don't have – there's no context to it, you know? So, like, you can have people over and – they may be used to like different ethnic foods or they're used to having a great proliferation of restaurants around them. But for whatever reason, they're much more open to come and eat a wide variety of seemingly strange wild game dishes than rural people who perhaps have experimented with those things in the past. There's no, like it's not novel to them anymore. It's not new to them. Like they know what deer meat tastes like. They just found that they preferred beef. So in that way, like, like, it's fun as well, you know, to to approach wild game through that lens. But mm-hmm. another thing, like as far as your question about having conversations with people you don't agree with, if I'm talking to someone, let's say I'm talking to just a flat out vegan, right? I really don't have anything. I mean, we're never going to change each other's mind. It's like you're not going to change someone's mind who's come to such a, I don't want to say radical, but I mean such like a vehement point in their life where they've really probably weighed out the things they're probably somewhat educated about their decision and they just don't want to eat meat it makes about as much sense to argue with those guys as it does to argue with someone about their religion you're really not going to change their mind Mm -hmm. in a general conversation and i'll often say i'll often throw up a flag of truce and i'll just be like you know what you've come to that conclusion you think it's unethical to kill an animal for human benefit, and there's really nothing I'm going to say that's going to change your mind about that. So we'll just have to agree to go our own ways, you know. And and, and that approach probably maybe it's maybe it's a weak approach, but that approach has spared me a lot of <laughs> agonizing, drawn out debates mm-hmm. that will go nowhere. Yeah, uh, probably fruitless to uh, to, to have uh, that debate. Uh, but uh, and of course there you know the two different camps and each with uh, with their own uh, viewpoint and logic be behind it uh, i think the more interesting question and i don't know if you've had conversations with people in this camp people who do eat meat but don't really want to think about where that meat comes from they're they're sort of separated with uh, with where that food comes from yeah that that's something that's almost more frustrating to me that's more frustrating to me than than someone who doesn't eat meat at all but I, I understand the perspective because in some way my own wife embodies it. My wife is eating more wild game than 90% of the hunters I know. I mean, it's all we eat at home is wild game. She eats it every night. However, I've taken her on a couple hunting trips, and she really just has no desire to hunt. She likes to fish, loves to go fishing, doesn't mind seeing fish get killed. With animals, it's not pleasurable for her. She gets nothing out of it. She still likes to eat wild game. And she's not ashamed to say, I eat it, I don't care to see it harvested. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you can really fairly be critical to someone for that. Because if you think about things like processing our own sewage, fixing our own cars, building our own homes, sewing our own clothes, there's so many things that we have opted out of. There's so many things that we decided, like, I just don't want to do that because I specialize in some other discipline. Like, I'm not a cobbler. I don't make my own shoes. And you can hardly say to someone, Oh, you're wrong because you wear shoes but don't make them, you know. In the same way, it's really kind of illogical to say to someone like, oh, you're wrong because you eat meat but don't kill it. Like I, I can't really advocate that that it's necessary to do so or it's immoral to eat meat that you haven't killed. Mm-hmm. But uh, my interest lies more in people who do feel that calling, 
who do want to have a deeper connection to food, who want to have a deeper connection to wilderness or wildlife, who want to understand hunting, if someone comes to me with that request and they, and they, and, and they desire that, I welcome them with open arms. I'll do anything I can to help them. But as far as like advocating or criticizing people who don't hunt their own meat, I, I just don't. It would be hypocritical for me to say that because, like I said, there's so many things that that I need to stay alive that I'm not fulfilling myself either. Mm-hmm. I did not build the phone that I'm talking on right now, you know. So it's like I've opted out of certain things. Mm-hmm. And we certainly, as we've gone along, a civilization specialized and. Uh, of course, you know, in the in the old, old, old days, you would uh, if you didn't hunt, you didn't you didn't eat. Yeah, and it's funny because if you look at when you look at Neanderthal remains, of which there are many, you know, all over Europe, south down into Spain, and all over into Romania, it's like they found that with them, like a, like an ancient form of human, there was no sexual dimorphism. You know, men and women were roughly the same size, and when they look at skeletons from Neanderthal, they see that men and women seem to have the same sorts of injuries on them, lesions and fractures around the head and neck, which if you look at injuries common to rodeo riders, it's like injuries that are sustained often when you're in proximity to large hoof mammals that will kick you and roll on you and various other things. So there's a suggestion there that not only were all men hunting at that time, but men and women were all hunting at that time. And in our own continent, I think that you know, prior to European contact, and then for hundreds of years after European contact, everyone who lived on this continent either hunted or was directly affected by hunting, like gained direct benefits from the activity of hunting. Now we've gone down to where nationally we have about 5% of the population is a licensed hunter. In some states, it's 1% or less than 1%. So, you know, we're kind of we're kind of fading out. Like I sometimes look at human history as being this really, really long story about the decline of the hunter. Hmm. Um, we we had a long, long run, and now in a per capita sense, we just, you know, we're fading. And um, and so in some ways, when I wrote my book, Mediator, it was kind of I almost saw it as a. I don't want to be too morose and say that it was a farewell, but kind of a, a last moment rallying cry for the hunting lifestyle. Uh, some five percent of Americans, right, are hunters now. It's, uh, yeah, that's right. But yeah, I mean, it gets hard to it, it's it's hard to peg exactly. So you'll find different numbers thrown around because some people point out that there's people who hunt who don't have a license, and the five percent tends to be five um, percent of adults. So there are many kids who go out hunting with their parents who aren't caught in that number, but around there. I mean, it's not radically higher than that. And some 20% are opposed to hunting. Yeah, and it's funny because you'll find, if you look at some statistical surveys, opinion polls, you'll find that you'll ask people, like you might ask the residents of a state, like, are you uh, outright opposed to hunting? And you may only have 27% say they're outright opposed to hunting. But then you start asking them about specific hunting practices, and the opposition levels go up. So you might find that 27% say they're outright opposed to hunting, but you say, how about hunting mountain lions with dogs? Then you'll have 60% say they're opposed to that. Mm-hmm. So people have really, um, you know, varying, sometimes radicalized opinions about hunting. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the big messages I want to put forth in my book, and I don't really talk about this directly in meat eater, but I just, it's something that I, that I put it out there in the hopes of doing, 
would be that hunters would learn a little bit more about how to present their case in a subtle and convincing way. Because we live in a democracy, obviously. And the 5% of us who hunt are living and existing at the pleasure of the 95% that do not. We can get crushed by referendums and other legal processes and voting processes. And we have to maintain good relations with non-hunters. I remember a number of years ago when I was a fur trapper, and that's kind of the peak of my trapping activity. It just so happened that in the state of Colorado, you got to a point where you had roughly, you know, 51% of the population of that state lived in Denver and Fort Collins. And at that moment, they banned fur trapping. Um, So you really have to, I don't mean to be apologetic about hunting, but to be clear about hunting and clear about what we're doing out there and behave in a way that shines well on us. Hmm. Some people claim that that's like being divisive, that I'm saying some kind of hunting is right and some kind of hunting is wrong. Um, If that's the case, maybe so, but I think that the end goal of being able to hunt at all is worth that. Mm -hmm. So you you do see real potential jeopardy. In some places, it could happen that hunting would be outlawed or restricted down to... I don't imagine, I, I cannot picture right now or in the next, you know, decades. I cannot picture that you'd ever have a, a ban on hunting. What you have is it, it just gets whittled away. You know, you lose access to certain pieces of land. Um, you have bans on hunting methods. You have restricted bag limits in areas that are, that are, you feel that the bag limit restrictions are based more on emotion than on science. You have things like bans on using hunting dogs for lions or bans on using hunting dogs for bears. It's just they come at you in various ways. Like the, the movement to ban fur trapping usually focuses on very specific tools and methodologies. You'd ban snares or you'd ban leg hold traps. Um, so in that way, I think, yes, you're going to see greater restrictions possibly, but I don't anticipate an outright ban in a certain state. Um, I think that we're a ways away from that, and hopefully it'll never come to that. But what I worry about, though, is just those incremental chipping away at our rights. We're talking with Stephen Rinella. He's author of a new book, Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. And uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'll uh, ask uh, Mr. Rinella to expand upon uh, something he said. Hunting is intimately connected with our humanity and uh, that we uh, should assume responsibility for the meat uh, that we eat. We've talked a little bit about that. We'll expand on that. We'll have Mr. Manella uh, tell us some hunting stories, some pulse-pounding stories in the book, including an encounter with a black bear, which is very interesting. I'll have him read that passage. It's all coming up following the break. Skip the waiting room and join us for another edition of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You'll get all that great advice without those lousy magazines. Plus, a heart-healthy recipe for... Mediterranean lamb medley. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Christopher O'Reilly here, and this week's From the Top is dedicated to folks in your public school. Yeah, I want to thank my high school English teacher. In, in sixth grade, Ohio. Mr. Kramer recognized me as a leader. This song just... goes out to my high school choir director. 
my role model and life coach. That's From the Top from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, Sunday evenings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation from August of last year. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Stephen Ranella, author of Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. We're going to have Mr. Ranella tell us some of his hunting stories. In fact, this book is uh, organized into uh, several different hunts, 10 or so, uh, around which he organizes the themes of the book. Uh, in the book, he talks about the vanishing frontier, the ethics of killing, the loss of Americans' connection with the, with the way their food makes uh, its way to their tables. And uh, Stephen Ranella is host of the television show Meat Eater on Sportsman Channel, author of previous books, American Buffalo, In Search of uh, a Lost Icon, and A Scavenger's Hunt to Haute Cuisine. His uh, writing has appeared in uh, such journals as uh, Salon, The New Yorker, and New York Times. And our pleasure to uh, have Stephen Ranella with us for the hour on Access Utah today. Mr. Ranella, I want to expand on, on this theme. Uh, uh, you say that hunting is intimately connected with our humanity and that assuming responsibility for the meat that we eat rather than trusting it to proxies uh, is one of the most respectful and exhilarating thing a mediator can do. And I, uh, you know, if I put myself in that, uh, that camp, I have to confess I'm more in the camp of uh, enjoy eating meat, but I, I don't want to think a whole lot about it. At the same time, I know that I have to own the fact that I owe a debt to the, at least to the work of the slaughterhouse or yourself if you were to provide me with the wild game. What is that? What is that attraction? What what do we get in in uh, connecting with our humanity by by hunting? You know, I, I think of something often when I think of how, like the idea of that that hunting makes us human or hunting's connected to our humanity. And I look back to the oldest known representational art that humans ever made, and it goes back in Europe, you know, thirty six thousand years in cave paintings demonstrating hunters and game, you know, painted on the walls deep inside caves. And I always think that, that, that as far as we know, the first time someone set out to draw a picture, at least a picture that lasted on a surface, you know, on the canvas of rock, chose to demonstrate hunting. It was just, it was intrinsic in life. And also, I think that the same way that we had to obviously hunt to live, I think that in some way we found inspiration in hunting. And I still do today. I grew up eating wild game, not as a strict diet, but it was just always around my home. My, my father was a hunter. We always hunted and fished. But we treated wild game a little bit separate fr from other food. We had a freezer that we put wild game in, a freezer that we put store food in. Um, the same way, like, vegetables that we grew in the garden lived down on these canning shells in the basement. Other food lived upstairs. And it was kind of like this division between the wild and ancient and the modern upstairs. And my dad cooked so much of our wild game in a deep fryer. He had this commercial deep fryer that he kept up in the garage. And he would, like, go up there to cook it, whatever it was. It would be squirrels, salmon, walleye, bits of venison would just go into that deep fryer. And it was kind of like his approach to it. It wasn't until I moved away from home to go to school and first experienced being like really broke and started hunting for my own food just out of pragmatism. I mean, enjoyment too, in a sense of adventure and love of the outdoors. 
but also pragmatism where I hunted a few miles from my college and we killed and ate a lot of deer. I remember my roommates and I ate four deer one time between October 1 and Christmas break. And at that moment, I just found that it, 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 doing that during that experience, I found that it really just brought our meal times to life, where we were consuming something that we had gone out and gotten ourselves. It was invigorating. It was empowering. It was a sense that everyone gets when you move away from home of being independent, but it was becoming especially independent to be able to go out and feed myself. And that came from a time when, honestly, I'm not just saying this, you know, to make a point, honestly, at that time, if we hadn't had success in hunting and fishing, we would not have been eating meat. We would go to the store and buy potatoes often and just eat salmon or deer and boiled potatoes. And that was what we would live on because our goal was to just stretch out our money and, you know, stay in school and, and try to be as independent as possible. And the pleasure I took from li- the pleasure I took from living that way lasted through now. And now I can't argue that if I, that I would starve to death if it wasn't for hunting. In fact, I would eat quite fine if it wasn't for hunting, but I still prefer to eat that way. You know, it makes me feel most alive. You prefer it that way. It makes you feel alive. What are, what are the other attractions? To eating wild game? Yeah, or to, to hunting in general. Oh, the other attractions for me beyond food would be just a, to develop a skill set in the outdoors, survival skills, also a sense of adventure, physical fitness. If hunting wasn't fun, I would not hunt. And if hunting didn't yield meat, I would not hunt. So it's a thing that it's a it's a discipline and a principle that rests on a, a few assumptions on my part, you know. But yeah, I drive a sense of a great sense of adventure, also camaraderie. I have excellent friends I hunt with, and on our hunting trips, we go on pretty vigorous, you know, kind of raw hunting trips in areas that are difficult to be in. And we find, a, like, a deep brotherhood connection out in those places, having a goal, having, you know, adversarial situations in nature arise. So I, I get so much from it, you know. And I also take pleasure in my time not hunting. You know, I hunt half my time, and half my time I just like to enjoy the company of my son. So it's not that, it's not that I'm only happy when I'm hunting, but I do feel most alive and most just kind of physically intact when I'm out in the woods. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, as humans have always been predators, and uh, but different from most other predators, we have complex emotions. I'm wondering what your feelings are toward your, your prey, your, your thoughts in that direction. I feel that killing an animal is a sacred act, and you owe a sense of gratitude to the animal you kill. And I feel a kind of somberness. Sometimes, particularly when I kill a bear for some reason. So in that way, I know that I don't see all animal life as the same. You know, I I see that some animals are slightly more sentient than others, just from my own perspective. And this is largely like anthropomorphism, where I just see it that way. But yeah, killing a bear makes me much more sad than killing a deer. With that said, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to say that when I when I kill an animal to eat, that my number one feeling is one of regret or one of you know of sorrow. Usually, it's a sense of excitement and a sense of gratitude and a sense of thrill from having set out to to complete a goal in doing it. You know, and it's like the same level of gratif- gratification that you might reach from building your own furniture 
or cooking your own meal at home from scratch. It's just a sense of completion. So I get that from hunting all the time, but always present is that sense of gratitude to animals. And, you know, one of my favorite writers of all time is the novelist Jim Harrison, and he had this line one time about how, you know, the predator husbands his prey. I think that it's essential in, in, in the practice of modern hunting to always have in mind that we need to leave the landscape as fertile as we found it. And historically, hunters have made many, many mistakes. We're largely to blame for the near extermination of the American bison. Um, we're largely to blame for the extinction of the passenger pigeon. Many other things, near extinctions of a number of waterfowl species, regional extirpations of wild turkeys, bighorn sheep, elk. We committed a lot of crimes. And since the 1920s and 1930s, hunters have been at the forefront of correcting those crimes. You know, hunting now has to walk hand-in-hand hand with con- conservation, and we have very intricate, detailed sets of laws that ensure that that happens, that we do not hunt our prey down into a position where it's, it's not as strong as where we found it. So I think that now we can look at hunting with a sense of rejuvenation. You know, it, it, we can look at hunting in a sense of the positive work that it does for the environment rather than the negative work that it might have done for the environment by our ancestors who really were not aware of things such as finiteness and, and things such as, as, as environmental destruction. It just wasn't in their vocabulary. They could never have anticipated the outcome of what they were doing. You have a very interesting passage in the book about Daniel Boone, who you, who you count as a hero, I believe. And many passages about Daniel Boone. This one in particular goes to what you were just talking about, that apparently he came to regret uh, the, what happened in terms of uh, destruction of the environment after he opened the Cumberland Gap. Yeah, he he had this great luxury of always being able to move on to the next spot. And, and that was one of the kind of the theme of Boone's life was that he would move beyond the edge of civilization a ways. He would walk out, find a place where no one was, find a place that had good hunting. He would set up an outpost. He might go back and get his family and bring them up there, and then more relatives would come and more people would come, and pretty soon it would get built up. And Boone would then move a couple hundred miles, and eventually this brought him all the way into the very unspoiled hunting lands of of Kentucky, and people moved there. He moved farther west, and eventually he abandoned that area altogether and moved all the way out to Missouri. And there are persistent rumors, it's not completely substantiated, but that Boone eventually had gone so far out the Missouri River that he may have come to the mouth of the Yellowstone near the present-day border of North Dakota and Montana. So he always had this luxury that I think of, I think of as a luxury, he always has the luxury of being able to jump to the next frontier. He could look back and say, oh, it's too bad what happened to that place. I'll just go to the next spot. We, re- we no longer have that. Um, we are stuck with what we have, and we have to take care of it. We do not have the ability to just turn our backs and move on. So we have to look at our hunting grounds around our home and the hunting grounds where we go on vacation and view them as something that we need to leave intact for our own lives and the lives of our children. And I think that that sentiment is one of the, de- the defining differences between hunters today and hunters of Boone's time. We're talking with Stephen Ranella, who's author of a new book, Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. He not only gives us some of his adventures, but talks about some of the themes. Uh, and one of those uh, themes, hunting is intimately connected with our humanity. We should assume responsibility for the meat that we eat. Uh, we also... Uh, 
talks about the ethics of killing, the vanishing frontier, the loss of Americans' connection with the way their food makes its way to their tables. A caller, Paul in Logan. Paul, thanks for calling. Uh, good morning. It's good to have this uh, conversation. Um, I just wanted to quickly say that I'm not a hunter, but I wanted to ask uh, the author today a sort of a conservation-minded question. A few minutes ago, he had mentioned about sort of, um, the efforts of hunters in recovering species. I want to ask him about hunters' role or responsibility in over-recovery, that is, advocating for large game to the point uh, where some advocacy groups might actually have too many species on the ground, and there's a conservation ethic there as well. And uh, many conservation groups uh, that, that advocate for large game have become quite, quite powerful in the western states. So I'd like to get his feedback on that issue. Uh, yeah, Mr. Ronella. Yeah, that, that's a valid point in some ways. I think that we have, in certain areas, overcompensated for bygone mistakes like you know well, i think particularly i think of areas in the midwest where you know i have a friend who lives in the driftless area of wisconsin and he talks about you know he's in his 50s when he was a kid it would be exciting it would be noteworthy and it's something you would run home to tell others about if you cut the trail of a deer if you saw a deer track it was it was noteworthy now that area has deer numbers pushing up into you know, I, I could be wrong on this, but somewhere in the vicinity of 35 deer per square mile. Um, and those hunters that are in those places are exuberant about the deer. They love the deer. They remember the time. They remember the lean times. And it's hard to get them now to agree to the idea that it might be smart to begin harvesting does. Not everybody, but some people still carry that notion that you can't shoot a female deer because we need them to make more deer. And now that they have so many deer, that there's some transmission of wildlife diseases, there's crop damage issues, there's an increase in vehicular deer accidents, but they just aren't open to the idea that you would limit it back now. So I think that it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. But in general, I think that that issue is an exception, and I still think we have a lot of recovery work to do. There are certain species like bighorn sheep, for instance, that really recovery right now of bighorn and getting them back into all of their native range is far more important to me than making sure that we reduce numbers in other areas. I think that people are sensitive to the idea of having hunter opportunities, you know, and it's hard to convince someone we need less wild game. It's just like a foreign concept to people. But at times, I agree with the caller that it is something that, that hunters need to say, like, yes, we've, we've done recovery and we need to maintain balance between various stakeholders, agricultural people, you know, obviously vehicles, obviously allowing enough, uh, allowing a stable population of predators to be on the land and not think we need to over-harvest predators just to make sure we have more wild game. These are all issues that come up. And, yeah, I don't touch on them in my book, but it's a really valid point. I think that there are some great examples to illustrate what he's talking about. Uh, Paul, glad you called. Uh, thanks for calling. Stephen Ranella is author of Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. Mr. Ranella, I want to uh, 
touch on uh, what I believe you say is a misconception that some people have about hunters these days and how it's changed, that uh, no longer is it for food, cultural continuity, or love of uh, the outdoors, uh, according to some people, but now hunters are out to, to prove their manhood or to get their jollies. Yeah, I think that that's a summation that a lot of people would offer. I see it all the time. Like when I see someone come after me or come after other hunters I know um, on social media sites or places where it's really easy to kind of snipe at people or make accusations to people, one of the knee-jerk criticisms of hunters is this this notion of getting your jollies um, or proving your manhood. I talk in my book that the proving your manhood argument does in some ways have a lot of historical merit if you look at practices of Native Americans, practices of Amerindians in South America, and hunter-gatherer groups all around the world, where to take big game, to successfully kill big game, especially on one's own or, or dangerous game, was something that raised, that, that, that gained you a lot of esteem in your group. It was something that was respected. It showed a level of bravery. It showed a level of aptitude. It showed that you had the necessary skills to survive. So I don't think it's necessarily bad to say that if a boy, you know, turns 13 or 14 years old or a girl turns 13 or 14 years old and kills an elk, that you might look at it as some sort of rite of passage. You know, I think that that's a fair thing. The getting your jollies argument, that, that we just want to go and get our jollies by killing animals, has some logical errors in my thinking. Because hunters often put themselves into situations where we're in uncomfortable environmental circumstances. It could be really cold, really hot, snow, rain. We deal with a high degree of uncertainty. Um, very few hunting opportunities in this country offer better than 50% success rates. Elk hunting in the West, which is very popular, often you find the success rates are 20%. If we really just got our jollies from killing animals, why would we not do things like volunteer like at a, at a humane society place where they have to gas a lot of dogs and cats or go get a job at a slaughterhouse where you can, you know, it can be air-conditioned and you're allowed to just kill cattle and hogs all day. So I just don't think that it really makes sense that that's the, that's the driving, motivating factor is getting jollies from killing animals. I think there would be a lot more practical ways of going about achieving that if it was really the case. But like I said, I think it's knee-jerk. I think it demonstrates a lack of, of really thinking about what your criticism is. One of the problems I have with when, discuss, when talking with non-hunters or, or reading perspectives from non-hunters is so much of it seems to just like derive from other arguments. I would love to hear some really fresh, great arguments against hunting, but the ones I hear are so often stale and, and kind of tired out and also not very motivated by honesty. It's just like it's a thing that people say because they want it to be really cutting and they think it's forceful, when in fact it just demonstrates a logical problem in my mind. Yeah, I would, I would think if you, especially if you eat meat, you know, there's really no good argument that... <laughs> I like the no, that's the other thing too. Is like we we kind of touched on that earlier. This idea that if you eat meat, like I, I kind of made the point earlier that I can't tell you that it's somehow immoral to eat meat that you didn't kill, you know. But I can say that if you do eat meat, it's 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 ridiculous for you to oppose other people's eating of meat that they kill. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it just it just makes really no sense to me, and I think it comes from 
having such a removal and such a distance from where food comes from that you've kind of forgotten the fact that the animal you're eating, when you go buy chicken nuggets, that that was a chicken that someone physically killed. I mean, we have so many opportunities for removal on that, that to see that someone driving down the road with a dead deer in the back of their truck is a shocking reminder of what goes on, you know, and I think that it makes people uncomfortable. And I would say that most of those, we talked earlier, like, you know, 20 some percent of Americans are uneasy with hunting or opposed to hunting. I'd have to think the vast, vast majority of those people are eating meat. Uh, now, on the other side, if you're a vegetarian or vegan, uh, you're, you're on stronger philosophical ground, I guess, if you oppose hunting. I would say so. I mean, it's not troubling to me if someone, if someone comes to me with that perspective. It's not troubling me at all. It is troubling to me if someone comes with that perspective and they want to go and seek ways to ban what I do, you know. I mean, then it becomes more troubling. But I, I'm just open to the idea that the people are going to have varying perspectives. And I think that part of my life philosophy on hunting and, and, and eating is that we have to find a way to allow people room to express themselves through their decisions without feeling as though we're confronting an enemy. I expect that from people who do not hunt. And since I expect that and appreciate that from people who do not hunt, I have to grant them the same thing. Let's go to another caller. This is Barbara in North Logan. Barbara, thanks for calling. Hi. Um, enjoying the conversation, um, and I enjoyed your comment about how hunters are so dependent on people that don't hunt. So you have hunter education programs. What would you propose as hunter or non-hunter education for the folks that don't hunt but support it? What I would propose, like the, the things I like to cite when I'm talking to someone who just has an honest curiosity about what do hunters actually bring to the table, you know, are we just out there doing our own thing or do we have, or, or is there some advantage? The thing I like to point to most readily is that hunters and fishermen, outdoor recreationalists, pay a self-imposed excise tax on, on all sporting goods. It's something that, that hunters voted in long ago. And the taxes we pay on firearms, ammunition, camping gear, hunting gear, amounts to about $250 million annually that by federal law has to go to wildlife conservation. The most effective organizations, in my mind, out there doing real-time grassroots work on restoring wildlife habitats, ensuring public access to wildlife, are hunter-driven organizations such as Ducks Unlimited, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Pheasants Forever, National Wild Turkey Federation, and many other groups. Groups like that, like take Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they focus on elk habitat, and particularly preserving elk wintering grounds. They do this through the knowledge that elk are an apex species. If you're making good elk habitat, you're making good habitat for everything else. So you can do something and preserve elk, and it's almost like shorthand for general wildlife. And also in the Rocky Mountain West, the shortage we have is on big game wintering ground. It's one of the limiting factors we have on the productivity of the land. So they do very focused work that has real-time benefits. That's one thing that I would like non-hunters to understand, that we are at the forefront of conservation. And I don't say that without the awareness that hunters 
committed many environmental sins in the past, but I think that we're sensitive about that and that we really try hard to remedy it. I cannot say this is true of every single hunter out there, but it's true of the majority of serious hunters who put their time forward and their annual dues forward and their tax money forward to create a better environment than the one we found, than the one that was handed to us. And for that, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a hunter. Th- thanks, Barbara. Yeah, I agree, go, I agree go ahead. with you that a lot of people don't know that all of those kinds of taxes and incentives um, go towards um, so many supporting pieces of where hunt, not just hunting, but where land conservation can be. Thank you. Thanks, Barbara. Appreciate, oh, thanks, appreciate the call. We go now uh, to Bettina in Springdale. Welcome to the program, Bettina. Thank you. Um, of course, down here um, we have the uh, condors. They reintroduced the condors, and some of the uh, uh, people were worried, you know, that they would tear off their sheep and stuff. But now they found that they're good, you know, just to eat what's dead up there on the mountain. But uh, the still the problem has to do with lead shot. And it, the poisoning of, um, you know, that in the carrion that they eat. And so I was just wondering what you do. I'm sure since you eat your meat, you don't use lead shot. So what do you suggest to others? I've been just, I'm in the initial stages of experimenting uh-huh. with solid copper ammunition. Uh-huh. Like I've been, I've been kind of watching the debate. And I'm trying to, as carefully as I can, sort out what might be any hysteria from fact. The thing that affected me most profoundly was looking at an X-ray image of, or X-ray images of many deer that had been shot with conventional lead ammunition, and the amount of that lead that scattered out far from the entrance and exit wounds on those animals. And I feed my young two-year-old boy a lot of wild game. Uh huh. And looking at those images, frankly, it scared me a little bit. Yeah. And it's something I'm aware of. As far as the role on raptors, I think there's a lot of emerging information on that. Uh-huh. And right now, I can't fully, like, I'm not equipped, I'm probably not the guy to ask yeah. to give a full proclamation about it. But I just came back yesterday from a hunting trip, and on that hunting trip, I was shooting solid copper ammunition. And oh, I've been okay. using it more and more. One worry I have about solid copper ammunition, and it's something that I need, I need to put to rest through my own experiments, is efficacy. Um, I want to make sure that if I am using solid copper ammunition that I'm still having clean, humane kills, and, uh-huh. I, and I can, that I know if my bullet placement is well, is good, that I'll put the animal down, and I won't run the risk yeah. of crippling an animal. Lead ammunition in that way is very effective. Um, so it is something that we as hunters need to address and something we go through. Uh-huh. When the federal ban on lead shot for waterfowl went in, hunters were hysterical about it. I uh-huh. remember I started hunting. I was born in 1974, and I started hunting waterfowl in, in the years immediately after the lead shot ban. And Hunters at that time were still up in arms about the lead shot ban. It was like the steel didn't work, and it was no good, and it was this and it was that. Now you just don't hear anything about it. Mm-hmm. Guys shoot steel. They shoot non-toxic shot. It's just taken as a matter of fact. 
it works. We've recalibrated the things we need to know about distances and lead times and, and how best to effectively hunt with it. And now it's just a thing we all live with. You know, it's not even controversial anymore. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, yeah. it's it's going to be something that comes up more and more. And it, and, it's, and it brings up an interesting point is that technology does affect hunting. And technology has always affected hunting. Like on this on our own continent, it seems that the bow and arrow didn't really come into play until 5,000 years ago. Preceding that, there were maybe seven or 8,000 years worth of hunting with uh, spear throwers. So things come up and we change our methods. Um, now we often change our methods not just for issues of being effective, but also for issues of conservation and for issues of, of, of fair chase. I think we have a lot of things we need to sort out with electronics. Some states, such as Alaska and Montana, have come out and said you cannot use two-way communications, you cannot use radios or phones to discuss the immediate whereabouts of game. Um, so we're constantly looking at issues that come up and addressing it to make sure we're maintaining a, a fair, balanced relationship between predator and prey. And I think that in the, in the coming years, we'll be looking a lot more seriously at non-toxic shot. Thanks, Bettina. Okay, you're welcome. Um, Bye. Uh, yeah, that uh, that is a, a current uh, story in the news uh, out here in Utah. The the state is trying to to move hunters uh, away from lead shot. Apparently, they've had more success in in Arizona. They're trying to model after after Arizona. Uh, the last point you made, Mr. Manel, I, I I was thinking about that as well. As as a non hunter, you you do hear stories that uh, of methods of hunting or technology advances which in hunting certain uh, prey makes it uh, what you might call unsportsmanlike <laughs> and you do you are concerned with that i guess yeah i'm concerned with it all the time it's something you know when i'm thinking about hunting rather than doing hunting one of the things i'm thinking about is how do we balance technology just from a let's dismiss the idea let's just for a moment just dismiss the idea of, of ethics okay and just like dismiss the idea of like how's an ethical way to hunt and what is fair chase and just look at it pragmatically the more you have hunter success rise, as hunter success rates rise, you're going to have to do one, you're going to have to do one of two things. Shorten seasons, so you have hunt, shorter hunting seasons, or reduce the number of licenses that you're giving out. If you're saying that you have a big game population and we can, and we can harvest 13% of that population every year and maintain a flat line level through reproduction, and you have... 50% success rates, you know, if you push that up to 100% success rates, you're going to have to reduce by 50% how many guys are able to go out and hunt. So that's just one of many ways of looking at how we're going to handle hunter technology. Another way of looking at it is, is what I brought up earlier, where hunters need non-hunters to respect what we do and to look at what we do as being fair and balanced and that we follow an ethical code. And I think that some things everyone would agree is no good. We've agreed, hunters across the board have agreed, that hazing wildlife, for instance, with aircraft to drive them toward a hunter is categorically unethical. We've agreed that it's categorically unethical to use explosives to hunt for waterfowl, which is something that used to go on. We've agreed that it's categorically unethical to go out and use artificial, at, artificial lights at night to shine for deer. We've just decided that it's not the way to go. 
Other things we haven't made clear distinctions on yet. There's a lot of state-by-state variation on the role of electronic communications about the whereabouts of game. Personally, I don't like it. I don't like to be involved in hunts where that's going on. You know, I don't need someone else to find my animals for me and tell me where they are by radio and then walk me into them. It's something that does happen. I don't like it. I don't like it going on around me. Now, what we're going to do in terms of legality, if we're going to look down the road and say that we oppose it outright and it's illegal, I'm not sure on all these issues. We have to just take them case by case and look at what the technologies are going to mean for each individual state and each individual prey animal. But in general, my ethics go beyond what is legal by law. So I don't just derive my decisions from the rule book. I take something else to the table. And sometimes things might be permissible, but I don't like to be involved with that practice. Hmm. And in the case of electronic communications, um, I, I don't need it. I don't like it. To me, it's just distasteful. Well, we have uh, reached the end of our time, um, and there there are some uh, exhilarating uh, hunting stories in the book. Uh, uh, listeners will uh, will need to pick up the book Meat Eater: Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. The author is uh, Stephen Rinella to, to read those. One that I was going to have you tell, uh, I'll just uh, mention in brief. Uh, you're out hunting wild turkeys, being very still, um, and uh, doing your turkey call, and you feel. And hear a, a sigh, a human human like sigh of exasperation, turn around, it's a black bear. <laughs> that was that was a great story. Some other stories like that in the book, Meat Eater, Adventures from the Life of an American Hunter. Stephen Ranella, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Tomorrow, join us then. This is Contemporary Western Women. I'm Elaine Thatcher. Elmarie Gunnell lives in Cache Valley, Utah. She grew up in Blackfoot, Idaho. My dad told me that if I would earn the money and save it instead of spending it, because we all went out and picked potatoes in the field in the fall in Idaho, and the, the rows were long, and you'd bend over, and you'd pick those potatoes, and at noon, you had a sack lunch, and then you picked again until 5. And then they loaded you up on the bus, dropped you off at the school, and you'd go home. And I saved that money. And so when I graduated from high school, I knew I had my plan, and I did go to the BYU. And uh, down there at the BYU, I married a young man who, oh, he was tall, dark, and handsome. People just absolutely loved him. He just had a way with charming everybody. He was president of an insurance company, and he traveled. He'd come home on Fridays. I found out that he was living polygamy. I had a dear friend that was in the bishopric, and they knew what was going on, and there'll never be anything that will surprise me or hurt me anymore in life. 
because that experience turned out to be a wonderful blessing. I found out the strength that I have within me to weather any storm. Elmarie went to work as an assistant to the Speaker of the Utah House, Franklin W. Gunnell, and she ended up marrying him. She moved to his ranch in Cache Valley, where they raised livestock, including ostriches. But the ostriches wouldn't let anybody in the pen but me. <laughs> that is the truth. If Frank tried to go in at all, they'd attacked him. One got me down, and I was smart enough to not resist. I just let him beat me. I put my head down under my arms the best I could and rolled up in a small ball and just rolled up and I just let him beat me and thanked God. And he finally, he thought I'd, he'd killed me. And so I let him go and he just pranced off like he was the victor the whole length of that pen. Contemporary Western Women is a project of Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender and Utah Public Radio. We focus on women in the Rocky Mountain region and their stories of strength, hope, and humor in all aspects of life. If you have a story to share or know someone who does, please visit the Contemporary Western Women link at upr.org or call 1-800-826-1495. I'm Elaine Thatcher. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.